and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Murray Foster. Now, Murray was one of the founding members of the Canadian band Moxie Fruvis. They're a satirical folk pop band, very talented, very creative. They have some amazing songs. Unfortunately, they never quite made it as big as they should have in their home country of Canada. They had a cult following here in the States, but it was unfortunately that it was grunge that kind of did them in. Murray talks about that. We reminisce about his time in the band and some of his uh, songs that really um, are entertaining. He also was in the band Great Big C. He directed a very funny movie called The Cockshire Lads about a fictional 60s British band. He developed that concept with fellow Moxie Purvis band member Mike Ford. He also fills us in on what he's up to these days. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Murray. So Murray, thank you uh, so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I know obviously 2020 was pretty uh, crappy for everybody. How did you uh, survive the year? I think I did relatively quite well. I, I mean, I, I, I've been saying that I, I was one of the people that was least impacted, I think, by the change. Uh, because what I've been doing recently is a bunch of stuff from home. So okay. um, writing musical theater, um, teaching songwriting out of my house. Um, I've got a home studio that I'm quite busy with doing various projects. Right. And so, I mean, I think, you know, I think everyone went a bit mad in those first few weeks. Um, right. you know, like in those, I think, I think in the first month, like all my friends started doing like online trivia and mm -hmm. code names and everything else and drinks and like, honestly, I was double booked online for, for four weeks, you know, I was right. like, I can't meet you on Thursday online because I'm already doing code names, you know. Um, but uh, aside from that, like my my lifestyle was, was pretty much unchanged. Like I'll, my in-person classes switched to online. Right. Um, but that was really about it. So and then in terms of um, in terms of my mental state during the during a lockdown, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 sort of born to self-isolate. I think I've got, you right. know, I've got. Uh, yeah, I'm certainly an introverted. Um, and I can be full blown hermetic and, yeah. uh, when, when the need arises. So, right now, had you still been in, you know, uh, Moxie Fruvis, I'm sure the past year would have given you a ton of great material to write for the band. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think, I think for a lot of artists, uh, they have the time right. to write, to create, um, but maybe not the inspiration. I mean, okay. it seems like there's there's one topic, you know, yeah. on everyone's mind and, and no one, no one really wants to write that song. You know, I mean, you, right. everyone does, but one yeah. writes one of those songs, but, right. um, but, um, I think it's, uh, yeah. And then I think there are a lot of musicians who, you know, because they are creatures of the road or because they're not making any money or yeah. whatever, you know, because just because it's a, it's been a depressing year. I think there are a lot of artists that are struggling to find inspiration anyway, you know, so so that's yeah. a thing right i know like artists don't make any money now with the record sales or everything streaming so they're mainly their only focus is touring and that was totally wiped away so a lot of them kind of shifted over to those like virtual concerts which i mean i'm sure they mean maybe five percent of what they potentially make just a little bit i guess just to go out and at least make some money be, be relevant um did you do any of those um not i no, not really okay. um a bunch of my friends did and i sort of watched those right. um we with toronto songwriting school which is the school i run which is right. now online uh we had a weekly um sort of drop in open mic um mm -hmm. just just for fun and right. and certainly and, and that went for most of the year actually um and certainly in those early days and weeks it was uh it was I think really important to a lot of people's mental health. Like we had a lot of people showing up and, mm. and, and by week two, what we were doing was everyone would play a song of the 15, 20 people on the zoom call. Mm. And then we would just go around the circle and everyone do a check-in where they were just like, just sort of say how they're doing. Because I right. think it was, it was, like I said before, I think it was a lot of people really struggling and struggling with the isolation and all that stuff. And so 
it it was a it was a very good sense of community and communion and all that stuff and and much more necessary than i think now i think we're all sort of um used to it for whatever reason you know much more than we were in those early weeks right and you said you uh you founded the uh toronto songwriting school how did that come about um you know like i've been like with Moxie Fruvis, lots of really good writers in that band. Right. Learned a lot from that. With Great Big C, learned a lot from those guys. I wasn't I wasn't one of those sort of teen prodigy songwriters by any means. Um, and I wrote a bunch of songs and sort of was learning mm. the craft. And then about ten years ago, I started. I felt like my craft was coming together as a songwriter. And um, um, around that time, I was asked to do a dare to raise funds for the Stephen Lewis Foundation. And so for the day I wrote and recorded 30 songs in 30 days, I was like, I want to see what's in the tank. <laughs> right. And uh, coming out of that, I, I had a lot of these sort of uh, half-baked theories about how to teach songwriting. And then I was, I was sort of, I answered an ad, friend sent me an ad, like, here's a songwriting. These people need a songwriting instru instructor or this person does. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote back to this guy and I was like, hey, man, if you want to come over for an hour, I'll tell you what I know about songwriting. He was like, no we need a teacher at Trevis college in 48 hours to teach oh, wow. songwriting okay. a 13 week, three hour course. Yeah. And so 48 hours later, I was in front of 30 people teaching songwriting for 13 weeks. So that's how I got into it. I kind of stumbled into it. And then a few years into that, I was like, I think I want to start my own school and, and did that. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, we were all in person classes and doing getaways and going to new Orleans and stuff like that. And initially we were like, well, we can't do it online because it won't be, any good yeah. but then we realized that uh, plus you know in march we were like well things will be back to normal in may what, surely yeah. surely they'll be back to normal in may like i and i i always remember that because it's it's so interesting in retrospect to think of that thought yeah. but um but uh by april we were like well this isn't coming back anytime soon and so we switched online and it's been actually great and i don't think we're ever going to go back right. to in person yeah yeah so what makes a good songwriter <laughs> wow what a, you go for the big question don't I, you yeah might as well just <laughs> go what makes a good songwriter well i think i think the best songwriters are detectives are song detectives first yeah. and foremost and i think they have a passion for songs and a passion for the minutiae of songs and why songs work and i think a lot of them um you know because of that they when they were teenagers they had the job in the pub where they played for three hours every saturday night right because they love music and they love playing cover tunes and i think you know most of the really good songwriters i know did that did some version of that where they mm -hmm. had to learn 80 cover tunes um and through the course of learning 80 cover tunes and really paying attention and 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 busting out those sort of song scientists song detective chops um you start to just through osmosis like actively or passively absorbing how songs work, you know, and um, just kind of going, oh, this is how Van Morrison does a bridge. And this is how um, Elton John structures a melody. And these are the lyrics that Leonard Cohen uses. And, and I think, and then you just start doing it yourself and you get better and better at it. And so, I mean, aside from an, any kind of natural aptitude that people may or may not have for songwriting, I think, you know, the best songwriters I know still have that quality where they'll hear a song on Spotify and hear a chord change they don't know and they'll run for their guitar and figure it out. You know, people who've been writing songs for 20, 25 years, they, I think to be a good songwriter, you need to have that curiosity right? and, and be like, how do songs work and be fascinated by, by, by tricks. You know, we did a, we did a class last night and we had a guest lecturer, Colleen Doncey, who's an amazing writer, amazing musical theater writer. And one of the things she had just noticed, and this is a woman who's written five musicals and innumerable pop songs. And she had heard in some song where halfway through the second verse, uh, the, the singer jumps up an octave. And so she sort of shared that with us. And my takeaway was that it's, it's cool that she is um, still the song detective. She's still looking for those little things that she can incorporate, you yeah. know, the ideas, the tricks and all that stuff. And I think, I think the best writers are those people. Now I know like, obviously there are some like big artists now, like say Beyonce and a couple others who have maybe 10 uh, songwriters credited to, to a certain song. Now, have you ever like been asked to get involved with an artist to like 
help out, maybe write a line, write a bridge, and just along with other, you know, other songwriters on a particular song? No, I don't really know that world that well. Right. Um, but I do, I just, someone just sent me an article yesterday where, um, you know, there's this practice where these professional songwriters, you know, American or British Canadian, um, they write songs and they submit them to these big artists and they are asked not just to, to add the artist as a writer credit, Beyonce, for example, right. but um, give Beyonce 30% of the royalties of the song. Hmm. And so a uh, bunch of artists, a bunch of songwriters, I think a thousand of them just, just signed on something called the pledge where they're going to stop doing that, stop yeah. giving up royalties just went because people ask for them. I mean, that's, I mean, you, you look at something like, like Beyonce who makes enough money as it is to have just the nerve to ask for that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's not necessarily Beyonce. I don't want to, you know, put her, you know, but her just, people for sure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and from what I understood from this article, it started off with one or 2% royalties right. and then it just kept growing. And to the point that, you know, people like there were artists as part of this pledge going, you know, mea culpa, I've watched yeah. this happen. It's gone from 2% to 15 to 30 and you're right. It's terrible. And I'm going to stop doing it. So yeah, it's a, a you know, and songwriters have so little power, you know, right. They're just, they're just, you know, they have no, they're not gatekeepers in any way. And if, if they don't, and they, and they need artists to cover their songs, the professional ones. And so they're kind of beholden to that. And yeah. they, the artists have been leveraging that sadly. Yeah. When you were younger, did you, want to be a songwriter first or be like in the band like did you want to sing your own songs or just write songs um i didn't really as i wanted to play music um i tried writing songs as a teenager and i was pretty right. terrible at it like i think a lot of teenagers are right except taylor swift yeah <laughs> um and uh yeah so i didn't you know i but pretty short like at a pretty young age like when sort of when moxie fruva started right there's this imperative for all of us to be writing songs and so i sort of stepped up my songwriting but um i didn't really i didn't really imagine myself as a songwriter per se or yeah. let alone a songwriting instructor you know so it wasn't part of the dream i remember when uh, when i was 16 i was like because i was playing in a bunch of bands when i was 16 i was like i'm gonna be a rock star right mm -hmm. and unironically i had that thought and then at 17 i was like Wow, I was so naive at 16 that I thought I'd be a rock star, right. you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it was songwriter was, was ever part of my, yeah. part of the dream, you know. Right. Was, like, what was the process like in Moxie Fruvis? Like, writing songs, was it pretty collaborative? It was, people would bring uh, first versions of songs. I don't think many people, we weren't really co-writing very much. Okay. But once it got into the machine, mm -hmm. um, we were all, because we were all, good writers and we were all good, pretty good arrangers. We all had tons of ideas. Um, the, the collective machine in terms of finishing a song and arranging it was quite good, you know? Yeah. Um, now, I, before we started, I told you I discovered you guys when I was going to school in Buffalo. And I think the two things I got out of going to school in Buffalo were the good wings and the Canadian music and a little bit of beer. That's probably sure. the three, th yeah, the three, the three things. So like, mm -hmm. I had like a bunch of artists, you know, on on the show from like M Griner, Tara McLean, you know, just name a couple. Um, and I discovered you guys working at the radio station in, in Buffalo, I was doing the sports updates, and I was like, "Wow, this is really something I've never heard before." So then, you know, I I guess you can call me an unofficial fruithead at that at that point because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was really good. Saw so you up in Buffalo, I think it was ninety three, ninety four, and then just went from there. So some of the songs like I really enjoyed. Uh, it's I guess one is pretty topical now. I mean, the greatest man in America, because I, I wouldn't say unfortunately Rush Limbaugh died. I mean, you don't want to speak ill will of the mm -hmm. dead, but I'm glad that he's like most people, glad he's gone. Ditto. 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 Coming from Canada. We love those leaders who personify the U.S. way to be. There was JFK and LBJ and WKRP. But of these there is not one to rival the greatest genius of them all. He's a megalo with a healthy glow. 
He's the man called Rush Limbaugh He's a dose of P.T. Barnum With a Mussolini twist El Duce There in the limousine Parked on the lawn He's a goofy Genghis Khan Not since Jesus Christ Has the world seen someone With such widely syndicated views Hundreds of years from now, they'll celebrate Rushmas and Rosh Hashanah for the Jews. Cause he'll pull the plug on famine Nazis, paranoid minorities and gays. He's a burning bush with a network push, sure to start a countrywide blaze. He taught me to love and praise Charlton Heston. Oliver North is quite a nice man, too. That's what they say. Forget Alan Tipper, let's bring back the Gipper and Joe McCarthy, too. I was a troubled soul, consumed by voices advocating special interest groups and vice. Till rush, rush to my sweet rescue. Now I'll never, ever have to think twice. Never, ever have to think twice. So we'll sign a check for Limbaism. Restore the moral fundamental core. We'll cut the debt and start a tet offensive on the poor. It's a mystery in the making. Everybody! It's distinctly upper class. Well, not everybody. Uh, yes, sir, I'll get the door. Roll the carpet on the floor. For a man. For a man. For a man. Such a man. For a man. With his hand up his... Ditto. 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 Ask us the name of the king. It's Rush. The greatest man in America. What kind of gave you the motivation to write that song? Uh, we've been doing a bunch of satirical comedy songs leading right. up to that. I mean, yeah. as early as 91 or, you know what, I think even 89, like in our first summer of busking, we mm. were seen by a, a CBC producer okay. in CBC radio in Canada and asked to write some satirical songs because we were already kind of doing that on the street. Yeah. We were street buskers at that, right. at that point. And so, yeah, for the first few, you know, it wasn't like three years in, we released our first cassette and then things okay. really took off. Right. But in those first three years prior to that, we were busking and writing satirical songs for CBC. Mm. Like that's really what we would do right. and rehearse a little bit, and, but not full, not, not yeah. that diligently, quite frankly. Um, and so, yeah, so we had that in our back pocket that we, that we could write satirical tunes. And then with, the Greatest Man in America, the Rush Limbaugh song we did, I don't think there was a, a sort of something that, we didn't write it for any purpose. I think we okay. like we sort of just said, let's write a Rush Limbaugh song. Right. <laughs> Although, you know, it, we, it could have been for some some show somewhere, maybe some American radio yeah. station or something as memories. Of, I remember we wrote it basically on the road okay. and we recorded the first version in Austin, Texas. And so um, it could have, in the, in the, <laughs> in the right. pandemonium of, Right. of those early tour years in a yeah. in a Ford Aerostar it could have been in fact for a for a radio station I just don't remember it but but it was yeah it sort of happened on the fly around that time yeah I mean like your songs were you know like different and a little like it's quirky but they didn't seem to be radio friendly so how much play did you actually get very little I mean, right. ask ask my royalty statements, and yeah. uh, <laughs> right. they, they'll an, they'll answer that question for you. Yeah. No, we got very little. Um, you know, I mean, probably our best known song was "King of Spain," and the version right. we did was not radio friendly. Like it just, yeah, it didn't have a drum kit. It's it, even to my ears today, it sounds incredibly thin. Like it's an a cappella song, so it's, yeah. it's you know going to sound thin. I mean, radio doesn't really play that much a cappella music. Yeah. It was it was, you know in the early days of grunge and so it didn't fit any format and all that right. stuff so um and then once grunge hit i mean we had a fairly big hit in canada with stuck in the 90s
Clem had a daydream, daydream from heaven. Picked up the headline, his country was made up of singers. And no more right-wingers. He wakes up to homeless are stupid. Welfare is stupid. Private investment efficiency. Cool fiscal planning. Sounds like more Pat Buchanan. Back in his day job this afternoon. Unlikely he'll move down to Cuba soon Reluctant to find he's stuck in the night Left reads of the old days, 20 years goes a long ways. Challenge the system, relating is easy on a demo. Now they'll send it by mammal. Cause there's no need for the peace sign, post Republican peacetime. Join the parade, wave the flag, tell the world it's your lackey. Abby Hoffman was wacky Riding a bike to his foreign garb Burning his mind in his VCR Reluctant to find he's stuck in the 90s again Reluctant to find he's stuck in the 90s Some big plans, goodwill has some big hands With each new computer screen The world tells me I'm more green Buy a new Game Boy For the fun and the fashion To find he's stuck in the 90s again Reluctant to find he's stuck in the 90s again Why? Once grunge hit, we were like persona non grata, right? Like everywhere uh, in radio and yeah. and media and everything. We were just like the uncoolest thing, right. and uh, yeah. And so that the door just closed forever for sure on that. Right. It was unfortunate because you guys, there wasn't really a category you can put the, the band in. Mm-hmm. I guess it's probably made it a little more difficult to vote you guys. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, like I think that the Bare Naked Ladies covered some similar terrain, right. but they, you know, in the early days they had a drummer mm-hmm. and their songs were like, like even Million Dollars or right. um, Brian Wilson, especially, yeah. were 
were quirky and maybe humorous, but um, they were just on the right side of the line that radio could play them. Whereas ours were kind of wacky and sounded kind of scrappy. We weren't as good a band. Like they were way way better players. So sonically our songs weren't that great in the early days. Yeah. So we just weren't the right fit for, for radio. You know, no one had a category for us really. Right. And then they had one week and that took off. Where yeah. you guys really did. I mean, you had great songs, but really didn't have that one that can push it over the top on the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, you know, for our last record, we, I think a couple songs we were writing as if, like, to say, well, maybe these could be radio singles. But we'd never done that before. Yeah. We'd, we'd hoped for it, but we were not really savvy enough to produce it in that way. Um, and then, and, and by the time we thought to do it, I mean, we didn't have, they weren't the right songs, probably not the right production, all that stuff. So it's right. a crapshoot anyway. And, 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 you know, like we, it's not like we had a string of hits to, <laughs> that, yeah. that gave us momentum at radio that they had to play the next song. Right. So, right. Which unfortunately is, I think, didn't King, King of Spain go number one for you guys? Did it? I, I thought it did. Not yeah. in radio. Not in radio, but just like with sale, was was it something that number one in in our hearts? No, okay, maybe, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what you're remembering. That Memory, feeling, okay. The number one feeling that you yeah, had in my heart too, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like mean, number... I mean, we we it sold well as a as a, a CD, but it didn't. Right. It didn't. It didn't do much. I mean, I remember hearing it once or twice on radio, and that's okay. it. Right. And I get it. I mean, it's just like such a weird yeah. song right. for radio to play. Once I was the king of Spain. Now I eat humble pie. Oh, my unspeakable wife, Queen Lisa. Now I eat humble pie. I'm telling you I was the king of Spain. Now I eat humble pie. And now I work at the pizza pizza. One, two, three, four. Royalty, Lord, it looked good on me. Buried in silk in the royal or going nuclear free or playing broken with the princess of Monaco telling my jokes to the OPEC leaders getting it all on video once I was the king of Spain now I eat humble pie yeah palatial palace that was my home now I eat humble pie I'm telling you I was the king of Spain now I eat humble pie and now I vacuum the turf at Sky Dome once he was the king of Spain I can't wait, I'm lowering interest rates My people say King, how are you such a genius? There's a roof overhead And food on our plate It's laissez-faire, I don't even give a care Let's make Friday part of the weekend And give every new baby chocolate eclair Once I was the king of Spain Now I eat humble pie Hey Clinton, hey Yeltsin, got problems? You phone me Now I eat humble pie I'm telling you I was the king of Spain Now I eat humble pie Call me up to drive the Zamboni Once he was the king of Spain Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you the International Orchestra Now some of you might be wondering how I came to be living in Canada after being royalty in Spain should I tell them, guys? Tell us, kids! You see, late, one night, when the palace was asleep, out of my royal chambers and into the garden I creep. And I wait till the appointed time when the moon is lighting the pitch, at which point my peasant friend, who looks just like me, arrives, so we make a switch. Prince and pauper, junior and whopper, a world made up of silver and copper, under my own volition, I took a change of position. So next time you drool in the pizza line, remember slower pizza's more luscious, the king of Spain never rushes. Once I was the king of Spain, now I eat humble pie. I was looking for off-handed ways to improve us, now I eat humble pie. I'm telling you I was the king of Spain, now I eat humble pie. And now I'm jamming with Moxie Fruvas. Once he was the king of Spain. I think the song I heard the most by you guys on the radio down in Buffalo was Michigan Militia.
of race dilution in Houston. What is the problem? I'm fighting for you and a blue-eyed Jesus. America first, the rest get the pieces. topical suddenly yeah exactly it's kind of yeah. like the simpsons predicting the future yeah that's that, right that, that song yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so um we had a couple other ones i love my boss which might you know, kick in the ass so yeah it's some very you know uh clever songs and then the edition of uh spider-man mm-hmm. yeah so like, with that song being kind of a cover were you guys comic book fans at all or yeah i think um average to maybe slightly above average comic book fans but right. we're fans of that song basically yeah, you know yeah and and it also i mean that was you know the first four songs we did on the street like our very first show yeah. was spider-man green eggs and ham king of spain yeah. and that boy by the beatles okay for acapella tunes and so because we were like a busking quartet we were looking for yeah. theatrical songs and the right. spider-man theme played yeah. into that Spoon, big baboon big baboon big baboon big baboon spider-man spider-man friendly neighborhood spider-man is he strong listen bud he's got radioactive blood hey there there goes the spider-man 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 does whatever a spider can shooby do rock steady crew find him an opera the pet ingenue with glare there goes the spider-man in the heat of night at the scene of a crime with the speed of light he arrives just in time well no red-blooded boy or girl would miss this saturday's appearance of spider-man down at the local county fair unless of course they're at home with their collections spider-man's master plan build his own little spider clan in the woods now they're troops fighting for special interest groups look out where wherever there's a bang you'll find a great big hang you'll find the spider-man my spider sense is tingling it sure is in such films as spidey go speed racing spidey hawaii spidey's girl spidey my pal spidey the underwater adventure seeker spidey the fun liquor spidey a drink for all ages i know like they've been obviously nine million spider-man movies and i think each of them kind of had a similar you know street group singing the song and you know in the subway right. or whatever yeah and it's a great guys, song yeah it is unfortunately you guys are never approached for that were you no no yeah that's a, no. that's unfortunate yeah 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 so why do you think i mean you guys have i mean some success in the states right right i guess a little bit more so than some of the other canadians that I, i've had on the show why, mm-hmm. why do you feel that like it's so hard to break through states well i mean we toured incessantly in the states you know right. i mean we we again once grunge hit we were sort of not that welcome in canada like we couldn't okay. get arrested in canada yeah you know we our numbers live numbers went from ten thousand to 400 within wow. a year or something like that 
just like the least cool thing. And so we said, let's just go to America and tour our asses off. And yeah. we did that, you right. know, and we were doing 300, 320 shows a year for a bunch of years. And so, you know, and, and that was the height of grunge. Yeah. And I remember like, I remember consciously radio did not play pop from Nevermind by, uh, by yes, uh, to, uh, to Spice Girls um, wannabe right. in 97. So there's four, four, five, six years of no pop on the radio. Right. And it's not to say that people didn't, there weren't pop fans out there. And so we had to go around America and, um, and, uh, and just find the sort of pop nerds uh, one by one yeah. and, and collect our tribe kind of thing. Um, and, and those people are out there and there are a lot of people who are like, yeah grunge wasn't wasn't their thing and so we were sort of a great alternative to that we just couldn't do it via the radio we had to grind it out on the road yeah. and it's like there were so like you guys were so, not you guys this music was so like i guess dealing with the radio that's that was like the only source where now it's like there's so many other avenues to get to get the music out and people you were so like tied to the radio unfortunately where now it's like you don't have to worry about it we would be we would have been an ideal internet band right you know because we were the classic niche band you know yeah. and um and we would have it would have been so much easier to find our people back then right. like, or, I mean, like now then as opposed to yeah now. exactly that's true you know free youtube it would have been youtube stars oh yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah yeah absolutely so um what made the band decide to like call quits we we're exhausted I right. mean, we were like clinically exhausted. We were just like collapsing basically. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it was eight years of, of 300 shows, 320 shows, 330 shows. And even by the end, like when we were easing off, we were doing 250 shows a year, um, plus releasing four or five, four or five, six albums in eight years right. or something like that. Um, so yeah, we just, we were just like, we just, the wheel sort of fell off at some point you know did the record companies ever like when you you know submit an album saying the stuff just it's too quirky or no they kind of give you free reign well um most of them like in canada we we had we wrote like rode this initial wave of right. fame celebrity notoriety mm-hmm. um and there was sort of a bidding war for us and yeah. among the agents among the, the labels so they knew that what they were getting right um I thought, I think they thought we were going to be much more, you know, and that was pre grunge again. So like once grunge hit, I think they were like, a, this is not the thing anymore. Right. But I do remember, and then in America, like we, we were a known commodity. And so when we got signed, people knew what they were getting, you know? Right. Um, but I do remember <laughs> we were part of our, part of what was dangled in front of us to sign with Warner in Canada was that we would sign with Warner in the States. Okay. Say, you sign with us as opposed to Sony or whatever, Universal. Right. we will guarantee you an american deal okay you're like that's awesome so right. we signed with atlantic in uh in america and so you know we went down to their new york offices and they were just like it became really clear really quickly that they didn't want us they just had they're doing their america the canadian cousins a favor and okay. so uh you know we had a really delicious amazing expensive meal in new york city right. in 93 and then I, we didn't hear from them again, really. Um, and one of the inner one of the one of the jokes in the band was yeah. we got a Christmas card from the Atlantic label at probably '94 or something like that. Yeah. And it was like, "Here's to 20 more shows in NYC." And this is like, <laughs> it was like you know, had, had the the card had referred to nothing that they would do for us. Right. It's like, here's to you guys continuing to do your crazy thing. Aside from anything we're going to do for you, you know, right. so, so that became our shorthand for we don't care at all about you. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, so they certainly didn't get us. I think they came to our first show in NYC and they were just like, a, this is not, like, doesn't even compute, you know. Right. So, yeah, that's unfortunate because you figure now, just release you guys, you know, independently. So it's like maybe you guys were, you know, you know earlier than you should have been perhaps uh, in many ways you know yeah. yeah right and i just want like one quick question about uh gian um the more we get into all the issues but do you think what happened this is also pre-cancel culture do you think that kind of 
cancel the bands. I know you guys were separated, but cancel kind of the legacy and some of your fans about what happened with him. Certainly, I think with certainly with some of the fans, yeah. yeah. Um, I think not with all of them, from right. what I understand. I don't. I don't really know the discussion within the community that well. But certainly, there are a lot. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of fans that, that gave up listening to us com- completely. Um, I mean, we were sort of, we were, we were, <laughs> we were kind of canceled in '93. Okay. <laughs> like in terms of like career-wise, like we right. went through that. Like we went through that really early, and and okay. we've never been cool in Canada. You know, we've been cool yeah. in certain pockets, certain people. Right. We were sort of we were cult in America. Yeah. And you know, we played the Conan O'Brien show. Right. Um, so we were slightly, I guess, cooler there. Yeah. But it, it's in Canada, it's never felt different because there was never like a Moxie Fruvis mm-hmm. revival that was threatening to happen. That okay. the, the Gian stuff that ended. Um, yeah. You know, like we, I remember uh, when we put out Bargainville, um, the Now Magazine, which is like the, was the big weekly newspaper, arts, culture, indie yeah. newspaper in Toronto. Um, their one word review was bullshit bill. Right? <laughs> and so like, uh, and I, I read that. Right. My, my heart broke, but also it was like, all my friends were reading this, right? Yeah. Like, and so, you know, we quickly learned that we were sort of outside of the, outside of the rules and we weren't, we were nobody's darlings except our fans. And so, so the Gian stuff, I, I, like, we couldn't be more killed. We couldn't be killed a second time, right. you know? So yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel like any kind of cancellation when it happened professionally. Right. Yeah. Actually, like, Bargain Bill's a great album. Yeah, I'm not yeah. telling you anything you don't know, but it's a you know, tremendous song. So it's like, it's unfortunate. And that album. Again, know. a terrible timing. Like the, yeah. the height of our career was during grunge when, and we were right. the, we were diametrically opposite of yeah. everything that was happening. Right. So it was just bad timing for us. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard from Gian? I haven't actually. No. Okay. In six years, five, wow. six years. Yeah. 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 I just want to shift to the Cocksure Lads, which uh, I, I love the, the project that you and Mike Ford did. It's great. Uh, so I'll start with, I guess, the music before we get to the movie. Um, what was the idea, like, for making this fictitious band? I, I guess not really fictitious if you guys actually created, you know, music, but the, the idea of, of the band itself. The band started really in our first year of Moxie Fruvis, and so that was 89. And I had this idea to write a parody of basically the kind of the Beach Boys, but Beach Boys lyrics in that, like the Beach Boys lyrics are kind of terrible. Right. Yeah, especially the the surf stuff, you know. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to write like a 60s Herman's Hermits Beach Boys kind of parody where the lyrics are ridiculous. Yeah. And, but the music's really catchy, you know. And so I wrote that uh, just as a one-off and the guys in the band really liked it. And we started playing yeah. that as a song. Then on stage, it started to become the shtick where I was dusty and they were the dustettes and we did a right. sketch and introduced the song and then yeah. played the song. And then it, for a while in Fruvis, we we kind of loved this idea and we started writing songs like these, you know, songs for this fictitious band and yeah. it was just an, in, an inside joke. And that went on for years and Mike and I were sort of the most passionate about the 60s music as well as this band. Right. And so literally for another 15 years, we would just like write by that point it was called the band was called the cocksure lads and uh, we would write like we wrote like a radio show like a behind the music about this this unknown band and right. writing a bunch of songs eventually in 2010 we went in the studio and recorded that first album the greatest hits yeah <laughs> greatest hits you know because we were sort of losing a bit of steam for the idea around that time and we were like if if we go in the studio we will at least have a tombstone for this amazing idea that we loved you right. know so we recorded the album and that gave it new life. And so we said, let's play some of these songs live. Yeah. Let's buy velvet suits and play some of these songs live. Right. And so we did that. And then, then we said, well, let's do a video for one of the songs. And then that turned into, let's do like a 20 minute mini movie, right. like Hard Day's Night. And then that turned into, let's just do Hard Day's Night. Yeah. And so that's how it started. And I, when I started it, I didn't, you know, you, you're always naive with these things, but I was like, I'm going to write a movie, you know, in, in September, and then by June yeah. we'll be shooting it, and it'll be done. And it's like four four years later, you know, yeah. uh, it was done, and after tons and tons of work. So that's sort of the that was the process, I think. Right, you ha- you really had to like 
I, I don't know if it was a for GoFundMe, but you really had to get uh, the finances, right? No one was giving you the money, right? You had no, to earn it no. yourself. There's very little infrastructure in Canada for, for film. Okay. There's no, there, are no in, in, there are no studios giving you right. that, really. So yeah, I raised basically 300 grand just by begging. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And Kickstarter campaigns and lots yeah. of... I mean, I got to the point where I was like, anyone I met at a party, I would ask them for $10,000. Like, and that's, I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes I got it, surprisingly. Yeah. Good. yeah. <laughs> you know? I want to ask what you had to do, but... <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. I mean, I had my, my spiel was certainly well honed by that point right but yeah i just put all the money together and um got 50 grand from the canadian government and okay. um and went for it yeah right. yeah well i mean the, the movie i i really love the movie it's you know it's it's really enjoyable it's it's great um any plans to make like a sequel or anything else involved in the band well it's turned into a a, a musical oh wow okay yeah so shortly after the film came out um, Bob Hallett, who I was in Great Big Sea with, right. he had, be in the interim, he'd become the musical director for Come From Away. Okay. Um, and in fact, so the, the Newfoundland consultant for that music. And in fact, they'd asked me to do that job <laughs> before the show was anything. Yeah. I was like, I'm from Thornhill, Ontario. You don't want me, but get Bob. So they got right. Bob. And, uh, and then the show blew up. And so Bob is now knows everybody in the industry in the musical theater. And so a couple of years later, he said, I think the Cockshire Lads should be a musical. And so he hooked us up with Sheridan College and uh, we produced, um, we started writing it. And uh, yeah, now three or four years later, it's it's almost ready for its first professional production. That's great. So yeah. So yeah. Dusty and Chloe live on. Right, yeah. In, mu in musical form. Exactly. How did you come up with the, the, the name of the band? We were in New York City and... Uh, we went to, I was with a friend and we went into a, this TV company, okay. small TV company, um, and met her friend who was the boss. And, um, uh, my friend said, these guys have this crazy, this idea for this, this crazy idea of, of this fake sixties yeah. band called dusty and the dustettes. Ha ha ha. Yeah. And this guy that we're talking to Danny Amory, he goes, that's really weird. I just this week had an idea for a fake sixties band called the cocksure lads. Um, and he's like, I'm never going to use, use the name. So if you guys right. want the name taken, we were like, but that's a great name. So yeah. we took the name. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's amazing that he just had this idea and just never really ran with yeah, it. Yeah. Like the same week. He, wow. he was never going to, he just had yeah. like, it just crossed his mind that that'd be a great name for a fake sixties yeah. band. I right. was like, well, we'll take that. You know? Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Now, do you have like any, I know now it's, you know, a live show, but making an, like another like version of a fake band maybe in the 70s or 80s or... we do have a 70s yeah. fake band okay thanks for asking okay. <laughs> um it's uh i don't know we're not going to run with it the way we did with cocktail but the, right. the, na the name of the band is parsons and mcgregor okay like an easy listening kind of america kind of band yeah. in the 70s right and one of their song we we made a song list <laughs> one of their songs is shuffleboard girl um <laughs> that was sort of one of their big hits Right. Um, and then, and they sing about like, like Dodger Stadium. They have a song about Dodger Stadium and stuff okay. like that. Like, these right. are Ameri Americana, obscure yeah. Americana things. They're American band. Um, but then they collapsed in a in sort of a cloud of cocaine by the mid seventies, yeah. and they were in rehab and stuff like that. So, right. yeah. yeah. Greg, uh, Greg McGregor and Jim Parsons. Oh, that's funny. Parsons and McGregor. Yeah. Right. That's funny because I, I had um, Rick Roberts on from Firefall, and so I was thinking, right. as soon as you mentioned, I'm thinking of that band because he kind of went down the same route. Yeah, that, the, those guys, and now I'm just thinking yeah. of the late night commercials of those like, easy listening videos. Totally. So you yeah. can see the song scroll above. So yeah, 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 that's a great idea. So well, hopefully something will come out of that because that's well, yeah. Amazing. I think Mike would. Mike's waiting for me to just say yes, and he would run for right. it, run with yeah. it in a second. Yeah, for right. Sure. <laughs> Do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? um it probably would have been king of spain i think um because we didn't get a ton of radio play but right. um probably yeah probably at home when that when that when that came on no i think it was in the car actually now that now that i think about it i think i heard king of spain in the car okay. on uh on on cfny right you know yeah. they're like here's a band we're never going to play again 
right? <laughs> but, but the kids seem to like it. So exactly. So, you know? so get the, get the tape deck and record the song. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So what do you listen to now? Um, last week I came across um Bonnie Light Horseman. Okay. Which is an American like folk super group of the last of like a year ago, two years ago. Right. Um, really folky, cool stuff. They do like. 400 year old old English traditional tunes and stuff like that. Um, lots of musical theater, because that's sort of my, that's research as well as for pleasure. Okay. Um, avalanches, just oh, yeah. shout out to them. That's really cool. Um, what else? Um, those are my more recent things, I think. Right. Well, I, Phoebe Bridgers was big for me last yeah. year, for sure. Right. And, and then, and then the, um, the Phoebe Bridges that you can take home to your parents, Taylor Swift, her folklore exactly. record is uh, pretty yeah. awesome too. I gotta say, right? Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of hers, but I can respect that she does everything herself. Yeah, right? which which I think is great. So she's super talented. Yeah, yeah, and, and folklore. Like I've never been a huge fan, but folklore is like yeah, an unbelievable album. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Admir, I really appreciate your time today. Um, good luck with all the projects, the schools, and everything like that, and. Uh, so it's fantastic. Yes, fantastic. Thanks for having me. And a special thanks to Murray for joining me today. Go check out his website, murrayfoster.ca. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first null one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you can listen to a podcast. A new episode comes out every week, sometimes every two weeks. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon.